Okay, so welcome back everyone to the Shopstool podcast. We have another guest this week uh, down in Melbourne. So this is one of Brian's friends again, Brian's Brian's crew. <laughs> <laughs> like I um, said, never had the pleasure of meeting Jess, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll say we're friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's Jess Humpston from Victoria. Jess is part of the Victorian Woodworkers Association, so she knows her stuff. And I've read that you are also into fashion design, which uh, I think yes. is going to be a first for our podcast. So welcome to the show, Jess. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So a good way just to get everyone acquainted with who you are and what you do, uh, could you just give us a, a, a brief rundown of how you got to being a woodworker especially with the with the fashion background I'm really interested in that okay sure so I think I think like most of us I always just loved working with my hands as a kid I was always quite crafty I think even a few times I had my mum made my mum rather take me to the tip shop and sort of collect a few items and make little weird sculptures out of it so I've always loved creating and making and then after school, I, um, yeah, I went to fashion school um, and it was TAFE based. So it was really heavily focused on making and crafting, pattern making, textiles, sewing, everything. Um, and I just loved it. And I really loved sort of being able to design and make something yourself. You don't, you're not outsourcing the making as at a certain scale where you could design and make it yourself and really loved sort of the fashion textiles aspect and how that is so closely connected to you as a person, you you and your body, this very close sort of physical touch aspect to it. And when I graduated from fashion school, I had my own little label for a while, sort of kicked along with that for a few years, but it all got, yeah, I did. It was many years ago now, but um, I, I think it was, it was quite intense being a designer maker, making everything yourself. And in fashion, you have to, you're not just making one piece, you're making that piece for many different sizes and a few of each that. So it was, it was, it was quite a lot of work. And so I think I had a little bit of burnout. So I sort of, you know, went, gave that up for a while, lived overseas, traveled a bit. And then when I came back to Australia, I um, actually studied interior architecture. And so for me, it was sort of a bit of a journey on scale of design. So I sort of scaled up. So instead of like a really, it was still a very intimate connection with sort of like experience and space, but it was, you know, scaling up and you're designing the whole, the whole space rather than just one single, you know, single aspect of it. And, um, then after I graduated from interior design, I moved to Melbourne and I worked in interiors, um, largely commercial design. So a lot of, um, food and beverage, hospitality, hotels, some workplace galleries, kind of a bit of anything, everything really. And that was my foray into full-time work. And I, I got a lot out of it and I still am practicing actually as um, part-time as an interior designer, but I sort of never understood <laughs> and still don't the full-time work sitting behind a desk at a computer all day every day it's like it's quite it's quite tricky um and uh to sort of juxtapose that or you know make keep myself sane I enrolled in part-time classes at the Victorian Woodworks Association and I did that for many years and I just loved it 
And it was sort of the highlight of my week, really. And I liked that you could design, again, getting back to designing and making myself rather than what I was doing at my professional practice where I was getting, you know, great experience with design, but everything was outsourced and there's so many players in the mix in terms of architecture and interiors that everything, you know, you don't have, there's a certain loss of control along the way. Um, And I think I was like, I really want to do this. I just love furniture and I love woodworking. And I decided that I needed to sort of take the jump and really focus on it to be be really good at it. You know, a few few hours a week at a part-time class is just not, you know, it's a great, it's a great outlet, but it's not going to cut it as a, you know, a really great craftsperson. So um, one of my tutors at the BWA had studied at Sturt School for Wood and I had never heard of this place before and she told me all about it and I thought it was just this magical <laughs> this magical <laughs> place I was like I need to go there that sounds amazing and um this I think from Ash. all the guests we've had on you might be the only one that's gone to start oh I really might... probably no oh, I think okay yeah interesting yeah, we've yeah, definitely yeah. spoken about it lots of times on the podcast before but I don't think anybody's been I might be wrong okay well, I'll give you a bit of an overview on Sturt. So it's, um, it's a craft school based in the Southern Highlands in New South Wales. And it's been there. They just, um, last year or the year before, celebrated 80 years. So it's very well established. And they have, you know, it's be- in a beautiful setting. It's really green and lush and it's quite romantic. And they have, you know, a little cottage for woodworking, one for jewellery, one for ceramics. And they used to have um, one for weaving, not anymore. But um, it's just a real centre for craft in New South Wales and I think even for Australia as well. And they hold an intensive year-long woodworking course there that's been running for about 30 years in addition to part-time classes too. Um, And so when I first heard about it, this was at the beginning of 2020, before before everything (laughs) changed. So um, I applied it's sort of a lengthy application uh, process you apply a few months before like many months before actually um and I applied and found out that I was going sort of midway through 2020 and that really I think was the thing that kept me going through the many many months of Melbourne lockdown and you know working from home and everything that went along with it and then I um yeah went Moved to New South Wales um, between lockdowns. Oh, yeah, to get... nice. <laughs> yeah. That de- definitely there. counts as, that's an essential service, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Managed to get there between having to quarantine, which was um, quite quite the feat. And, yeah, it was, um, they, so that was, a, again, it's a year-long intensive course. It's only 12, 12 students, so it's very, very insular. We all get to know mm. each other really well and you become a little family and it's sort of split up into four terms and they have each, each term, they have a visiting tutor from many different, you know, different sort of expertise areas of expertise. And it's just fantastic. It was such a great experience. And so that was, that was 2021 I studied there. And then, um, they so Sturt has a workshop space that they rent out to ex-students so I stayed on with a few other people um, and did a residency there for about six months while I figured out what I wanted to do because I think the most important thing was for me was to to keep going Mm -hmm. I think it would have been very easy to just come back to normal life and sort of 
get swept up in work and you know all those things so I kept going and then I moved back to Melbourne about this time last year or maybe a little bit earlier and I managed to snag a tenancy spot at the VWA um, so they uh, have a subsidized rent uh, program, tenancy program for up and coming woodworkers, which was really fantastic. So I share a space with um, four other emerging woodworkers and that's where I largely spend most of my time now. So as much time as I can get at the VWA and then also my day job sort of practicing in interiors. So. Yeah, cool. So at VWA, are you teaching classes as well? I am. So they, yeah. we don't have, you don't have to as a tenant, but um, a lot of tenants do that to sort of, you know, it just helps with the bills. And it's also a great, a great, um, it's a great outlet to teach. You get to, you know, you get to know what you know. And I think you yeah. get to really yeah. compound your learning when you're trying to explain it to somebody else um, who doesn't mm. have a background in woodworking. So I find that it's challenging, but I think it really sort of solidifies what you know. Um and also they, write, they make so many different projects. So each student has a very different project. And so you really, they make things that maybe you would never make as well. So I find it really interesting. Yeah. Mm. And it kind of, I reckon it kind of allows you to change your mindset of, you know, being really focused on one piece for like six months or three months or however long it is. Yes, versus in the absolutely. class having to jump like five minutes here, 10 minutes there. And yeah, I think it changes the way you think about projects. Yeah, and it really tests, um, I mean, I tend to really, really delve deep into each, you know, each step of the process of what we make and spend so so long on, on one piece, but you have to really be like rapid fire, sort of solving problems and helping students out along the way. So I think it's, it's, um, it's good training, I think. Can, can I ask which, um, when you were at Sturt, did you develop any of the pieces that we see? Like, did you, is that where a chair came from? Yeah, so I didn't make the final piece um, when I was studying, but I made a mock-up, so a really good mock-up, actually. Um, and so at Sturt, yes, they they sort of focus, they give you a broad range of skills, and the last term, or it was about maybe six to seven weeks, is you make a chair. So we all made a chair, um, or at least... Um, you know, the pro going through the process of making a chair, learning about the engineering and comfort and, you know, all these things that make up a chair. And I never finished it, <laughs> but I, I, I designed it and sort of made, made a, a, good, uh, a good step in the right direction of the chair. So I developed it basically when I was at Sturt and then I made the final piece when I was doing my residency the following year. For anybody who doesn't, it, it is called chair, but it's chair air. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure if, if people Google it, they'll, they'll know it because it is massively done the rounds. And it obviously um, was one of the projects that got you the Wood Review Maker of the Year last yes. year. Yeah. It's an incredible uh, <laughs> career to have gone from learning it in 2021 to being 2022's Maker of the Year. How have you <laughs> found know. that? Like, how the hell? <laughs> Uh, look, it's, a, it's as much of a surprise to everyone else as it was to me. I was. See, I, I, don't, I don't think it is a surprise. But like <laughs> okay. when I saw when I saw the shortlist of projects, I'm like, who the fuck is Jess Humpson? Where did she come from? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I could have I could have instantly told you that those were the pieces that were going to win because they're just they're so unique. 
Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, well, it was a surprise to me, let's put it that way. Um, yes, I think I never anticipated to win anything of that, you know, calibre so quickly after graduating. Um, yeah, but it was it's such a great um, outlet for getting your work out there and also connecting people. Like when I when it was announced that I won, there was just everyone was so supportive and people reaching out, you know, via Instagram. Um just saying congratulations how did you do it you know like people really delving into all the questions around it but it was it was really nice and also um you know one of it's not the most important part but a nice part of it was it came with some you know some money attached to it which was really nice to set up uh, as an emerging or you know a very fresh mm. maker so that was fantastic it was really good can i guess what the most asked question was <laughs> i think I think they were like, how? Oh, <laughs> how I, was gonna, I was going to ask, how much weight can it take? <laughs> well, that actually didn't come to I think a lot actually, no, probably the most last question is, can people actually sit in it? Does yeah, it function? Yeah. Answer is yes, you can sit in it. It's not, definitely not an all-day, you know, everyday task chair, but you can, you can sit in it. And I've had some, you know, people of different, different body types and weights all sit in it, and it, it hasn't failed yet. So it's still it, kicking it's, around. For, it's fishing line, right? Yeah, I was yeah, just about yeah, to say, yeah. let's, yeah. let's give, give everyone a, a, a mental image of it. So it's essentially yeah. round. What, what's, what size are the, the, is the dowel? What's its? They are 19? 24, 24 mil. 24 mil wow. dowels. And the seat and back breast is all monofilament, which is what you say. Fishing, which is fishing line. Yeah. Fishing line. It's a very fancy it's fishing, fishing line. line. Yeah. <laughs> I think now, now that we now that we know that you have a background in fashion, I think it definitely <laughs> starts to inform that pace. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think no matter, and I think as I think as woodworkers, we always well, we generally come to it from like lots of different backgrounds. I think it's, mm-hmm. whether it's sort of a trade or design or something else entirely. I think whatever your background is, it'll work its way in eventually. And I think it's sort of with that piece in particular, it's it's happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in um, how, for want of a better word, new uh, woodworkers like yourself at the time, say when you were designing that chair, for example, mm-hmm. um, you obviously have an idea for the, the overall design, but at the time you were thinking about what it was going to look like, did you have any idea of how you were actually going to make it or did you just kind of come up with the uh, come up with the form and then kind of scratch your head and say, how are we actually going to make dowels into, into join at weird angles and weird places? Um, because from my point of view, if I thought, if I gave myself four seconds to think about making that chair, I would just kind of go, I've got no, like, I, I don't think I want to deal with dowels joining dowels. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh, God, like, how do you do it? Yeah. Um, I think that's fair. <laughs> Um, and I think maybe maybe because I was very fresh to it, I didn't realise how difficult it would be. That was like right. the naivety <laughs> sort of helped a little bit. Um, but I didn't, in this instance, I didn't think about how it would join together when I was designing it. Um, I, I knew I wanted to make something ultra light and, you know, very light on materials. And I knew I wanted to make something with a, a weaving component to it and sort of a skeletal structure and that was sort of where I started and then um I I had to date 
prior, or prior to that, I'd been sort of modeling up a lot of pieces in CAD because I, I know, you know, 3D modeling from my other profession. But this one, I, there was no way that I could sign right. it in, in, in a 3D sort of mock-up. So I had to, I think I just went back and forth between drawing and modeling. And I think modeling was the, the key component in this. I made a lot of ten, uh, one to 10 scale models in different iterations and really worked out what type, uh, how the structure would work um, physically with triangulation, mm-hmm. getting getting it as strong as I could and as light as I could. And then from those um, tent scale models, I moved to a one-to-one mock-up with, it was like, this thing looked so rough. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was really scary to look at. Um, I think even one person described it as disturbing when they, mm-hmm. when they saw it. <laughs> and it was essentially a series of, you know, really rough dowels of the, of the size I wanted, 24 mil. And I can't remember where I came up with that, but I think it was sort of as light as I could go without compromising um, strength. And it had nails in the end of it and I just sort of whacked them in and pulled them apart and put it back together and it was held together with giant rubber bands and, you know, someone might walk past it or sneeze and it would literally fall apart. It was, it was really <laughs> tricky. And then I sort of, okay, I was like, okay, I know that this is going to work in some way, but I needed the joinery and I needed to make another version of it to actually know how it would, you know, if it would physically make it work together. So I had to make a really good sort of prototype of it. And then even then I had made it and I couldn't sit in it to see if it was comfortable or take weight until I had woven it. So it was quite a process to get it to a, you know, a suitable prototype. Mm. So it was, it was, and I think along the way, I probably wanted to give up quite a few times because <laughs> it was really tricky. And I think, I think, you know, in the dark times of a design process, what keeps you going is it always has to be interesting. And I always needed to be learning something. I was like, I really want to nail this sort of triangulation and structure and getting something as light as possible. So I think it was um, pure stubbornness that got me through making it. <laughs> It just shows the real benefit. We've spruced it before about physical model making. Like, not everyone has CAD skills. And even people like yourself who do have CAD skills, there's times where it's just quicker and better. Like, a CAD model is all very good, but unless you have serious CAD knowledge, Mm -hmm. you're never going to be able to test structural um, capabilities Mm -hmm. in it. But the second that you glue that balsa model together and use different sizes and different triangles, as you say, you instantly know you get the yeah. feedback from the model as to what is working. So it's a big call to people out there. If you don't have the CAD skills, you don't need them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even sometimes when, and in my previous, the previous couple of pieces I'd made before um, this chair, I'd made them largely, you know, models and drawing, but also the final sort of model was made in CAD, a CAD program. And you could sort of tell that it had been made in a CAD program in a way. I was sort of designing in extrusions and planar elements, which is really nice. And I, you know, I like that in terms of an aesthetic, but I think this one, you can tell that it wasn't designed in that way. And I think often you can see sort of where the genesis of design process is. And the, the weaving, how long did that take? Oh yeah. So that, um, I think I had finished the piece and then I took it home over like a, you know, a rainy Southern Highlands weekend and I just watched 10 movies and I think I did it over a few days and I had to take it apart and put it back together. And, you know, if I did it again, it may, would maybe take half a day or something like that. But um, yeah, it took a, geez, took a couple of days. Half a day is pretty good. 
Yeah, yeah it's not yeah, bad. That's, that's a lot of line. <laughs> it is a lot. Can I, it is a lot can of I ask the, um, the rebates for the filament in the top rail? Did you mm. do that using a, a router and a jig or a lathe? Or I did. How did you? I, I did. I, haven't, I didn't use a lathe at all for this piece. Um, yep. The plan is to make another version of it on the lathe and just to sort of compare technique and time spent on it. But this one was entirely made on the router. Um, <sighs> and for the little, uh, I don't know what, what you call it, the little fillets, they, uh, yeah, I just made like a cradle jig for the router and little um, spaces at certain mm-hmm. increments and just sort of, you know, like a little Pez dispenser would take it out, put it over and then turn it, next one mm-hmm. over, like that, yeah. So it was a very jig, a jig focused piece when it came to the, the finishing stages. So of you it. made the the tenons as well on on a router, I a did. router table. Writer, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, I did. Wow. I did. Yeah. Because you know, when I saw it, I thought this is an interesting use of greenwood furniture technique in like a, a dry wood. You know, if you've seen greenwood chairs, and yeah, you have like, true. have you seen those drill bits that just form the tenons on like rough green greenwood? Um, sticks and I figured that's mm-hmm. what you use like a giant pencil sharpener that just made that kind of drill on the end and if no. you wanted to make more of them I would maybe look into using one of those because you could make a tenon in I, about two minutes I don't think I even knew about that when I was making right. it so <laughs> so um, yeah no I made it entirely on the router table but potentially right. for another piece yeah wow um, I know Adam Savage talked about once when he, he got into sewing um, and he was harping on at length about um, how similar sewing was to making in general and woodworking as well, prop making, model making, and um, the fact that you're dealing with essentially two-dimensional forms in in the the plan, and then you can fold those into three-dimensional shapes. Um, mm. And he was he was doing it from a point of view of being say woodworker first and going back to, um, and learning sewing and you've kind of done it the other way around. Do you feel Mm. there's a pretty big crossover there? I think so. Yeah. I don't think I think about it every day and sort of in my making process, but I guess it's in there anyway. But, um, I think, yeah, when you're pattern making your, yeah, you're making a flat, object into a 3d form and mm. i think that thinking drives through and even simple things like you know finishing pro- in the finishing process if you've got a dent in your work you put water on it and you iron it out it's just like a big right. piece of fabric yeah so that's the chair that was mm. obviously the the last big piece are you working on anything spectacular or big at the moment <laughs> Um, I don't know if I'd describe it as big or spectacular, but I'm definitely working away at a few pieces. Um, I've, I think I'm, I'm working, largely I'm working to exhibitions at the moment and competitions. So I've got a piece, a new piece coming up for Design Fringe in a few weeks' time. And also I just I actually did send the chair off recently to Tasmania for Clarence Art Prize, which is exciting. And oh, congratulations I, on the shortlisting. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's, um, I'm actually heading off next week, which would be really nice. And then I've got a group exhibition with a few ex-sturties uh, next year in, at Craft ACT. So making a few additional pieces for that as well. 
What what's the future plan then? Like, do you have a goal as in terms of say in in the woodworking part of your life at least? Um, do you want to be making your own pieces spec? Do you want to make reproduce things that you're making currently, or you know work bespoke pieces for clients, or, or you just want mm. to stay kind of in the space you are, just being creative? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm still figuring it out. So I'm obviously in the early stages of it. And I think I, I think I'm basically in my self-indulgent phase where I'm just making <laughs> what I like and really refining my processes and my sort of aesthetic. I think mm-hmm. I really want to develop who I am as a designer, woodworker, maker, and then hopefully people will come to me potentially after they know really what I'm about. But I'm also in the process of making like a range of not necessarily one sort of aesthetic driving them, but I want to, you know, create a range of pieces that cover, you know, typologies of furniture um, Mm. and develop those. And I don't know if I'm going to go down the bespoke commission route. I think, I don't know if I necessarily have have acquired the speed yet that it requires, you know, it takes <laughs> yeah. to be really successful in that realm. Maybe that's, you know, further down the track, but I think if I, you know, if people respond really well to the pieces that I'm making now, and then maybe sort of tweaks to those, you know, for customization or, you know, just generally reproducing a range of pieces as they, as people like, then I think that's what I'm heading towards. Have you done any commission work in the past for, maybe friends and family i actually haven't to date um no right. it has not happened yet i think a lot of people are like oh you know maybe in the future but it just hasn't it hasn't happened yet so i think i've just been yeah very self-indulgent and just making what i want to make which i think is i think it's really important as well and i've sort of um structured my life in a way where i have a steady stream of income from you know another field of work so I can make the things I want to mm. make and not necessarily have to churn out bread and butter pieces, which, you know, those, I think that has benefits as well. You really hone your craft and speed and accuracy and all those things, but it's just not the way it's, um, I've structured things at the moment. It's a really interesting mm. kind of um, juxtaposition where like people like yourself who have got the luxury, I guess, for want of a better term, luxury of time to think and... Um, uh, uh, just investigate your forms and, and design work and you can really put together uh, after a long time you can put together a thought a thoughtful piece um, but to, to sell that for what it's worth for the time you've put into it is just about impossible and, mm. and so there's this weird juxtaposition of really nice thought out design versus pieces that can actually be affordable or reproducible. I don't know, what do you think, um, Brian, about that kind of idea of super design versus practically being able to actually make it? I think the way Jess has done it is really clever. I think it's been really methodical. Like, it's gone from, I'll try some woodworking classes. Oh, I quite like this. Oh, what's the next step? Either intern for someone or you go to a school. She went to the best school, so she's learned the skills there. And I, I don't know, I think it's having the, having the day job and allowing yourself to work on really incredible commissions, well, not commissions, but really incredible self-commissions and honing your own aesthetic. 
I think is probably more important than learning the skills because you can learn the skills, like 99% of people can learn the skills. Whereas I think learning how to design something requires a lot of inward sort of inflection and a lot Mm. of time. And I think having the financial security of a job really, and it makes you really value your time in the workshop, I'm sure, Jess, like Mm. you're in there every second loving it. Whereas... I'm sure yes. a lot of woodworkers who, when they start, you know, they, you got to make vanities, you got to make bench yep. tops and things, and you're in there going, fuck, why am I doing this? <laughs> Whereas I remember what it was like for me when I was still working in architecture. I'd leave the office at 6 p.m., arrive in the workshop, and I'm like, yes, this is where I want to be. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I, kind of, I kind of miss an element of that. I will say uh, uh, what is – I've, I've harped on about this forever, so tell me to shut up, but – having constraints what i really love about um getting a client commission is that you're constrained automatically by what this space they have for whatever the object is and so that automatically makes you think differently about how you're going to design something and when i whenever i've tried to design a piece on spec for myself i don't give myself constraints and so i'm just everything's a bit non-defined and so sometimes I think getting that that really firm has to be this size or it's not working really makes you think outside the box a bit more. But it's, it's got to be yeah. made to this budget. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. True. Like, and so that that's a, maybe I don't know, Jess. You could um, <laughs> tell tell a friend to give you some constraints on a piece <laughs> and and just see see what your brain does with it because I think it, it's such a good exercise. Yeah, I agree. No, I agree. And I think, um, you know, maybe this comes from my background and, you know, current practice in design is I actually, I give myself a brief. Obviously I can break that brief if I want to. I'm my own client at this stage. (laughs) But um, I think giving, like you're saying, if you give yourself edges, you know, parameters, it really forces you to be creative and think Mm -hmm. things through and, and, you know, you know, find the edges of what that design could be. And also what it does is make you allow you to make decisions really quickly. If you give yourself a set of rules yeah. and you, and everything has to tie it back and make sense to those rules that you apply to yourself, then it makes the design process really easy if you set it up at the beginning. And um, I think it's really important because obviously there's so much content out there and there's so much good design currently and historically that you can draw upon. And if you don't give yourself a boundary, you, you end up becoming quite derivative. So I think if you, you know, give yourself those edges, whether they're aesthetic, you know, budget-driven, size-driven, functionality as well, I think mm. even if it's just for yourself, I think a brief is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you about the hallway-mounted pieces? Uh, oh, the little, the very skinny yeah, wall-mounted yeah. pieces? Yeah, so I, I think Absolutely, that, I love those pieces. Oh, it's thank probably, you. It's, it's probably because I, like I'm, my old architect brain likes straight lines. <laughs> I like linear things, yes, and it's always too, been yeah. the way in which I've designed. But I definitely see those as as sort of mini scaled down bits of architecture. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah tell yeah. us about where they've ended up or the design process for them. Yeah, absolutely. So those pieces, I act, I did design when I was studying at Sturt, and if we're talking about brief, those pieces were largely derived out of 
uh, lack of material. We we were in lockdown and we couldn't. <laughs> right. uh, we actually couldn't go and buy any more timber. So I had to look through my racks um, as to what I have and direct, uh, you know design around that. And in terms of functionality, you know, I wanted uh, components of the storage and function that you would find in a hallway table upon entry. But, you know, uh, where, I, where I've lived to date and probably where I'll continue to live are small, are small places that don't have a hallway necessarily. They don't have yeah. the space. So I think it was about, yeah, compact design and also designing within the material sort of restraints that I had available to me and also I wanted to learn as much as possible I wanted to learn how to do pivot um draws yeah the little knife hinges are class yeah I I really wanted to learn how to do that so I sort of and I wanted to learn as much um as much as possible during my time at Sturt I was like okay I want to learn xyz so I made a series of three so I could insert different sort of learnings into each of them and um, the sort of the pivot drawers were largely inspired by Eileen Gray's pieces, who was another sort of architect designer back, you know, based in the thirties. And I, you know, wanted to emulate that. And yeah, that was kind of the components of it really. So it was again, a brief driven piece, um, and for compact living and also a small amount of material as well. (laughs) Can those hinges take much weight? So just for everyone listening, it's essentially a mm. small box in a in a shelf that pivots on two hinges, top and bottom. Yep, yep, that's right. So it sort of rotates yeah. out on that. Is it um I mean, is there is that quite a solid um I mean A can it take a lot of weight and B is there a bit of movement in that? So or is it quite I, I would imagine the hinges it must be pretty good quality. Yeah, they um I don't but look, the piece is very small. It's uh, the piece is ninety mil high and about I think one thirty mil deep. So oh yeah, they're, right, they're, okay. So uh, yeah, it's that. so easy to be fooled by the scale of it because yeah, I was expecting at least two hundred. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, and so really, the the compartment that um, hinges out and back in is designed to hold a pair of sunglasses. So oh, I've just you, just found the photo with the sunglasses. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sunglasses for scale um and you you actually couldn't fit that much in that would sort of uh, you know affect the weight of the the weight capacity of the hinges so <laughs> i don't know what the weight capacity of them is but you, you're not going to exceed it in this piece because it's so small are they little are they are they brusso ones they're not brusso they're um gurner hinges oh, okay Okay. Uh, but the Gurner hinges, they came with a two mil sort of spacer in the middle, which it was sort of when I got when I got the hinges um, delivered, I, I felt that the scale, it was a bit out of scale for the fineness of the piece. So I actually yep. I pop pop them out and I turned them down on a metal <laughs> lathe, so, <laughs> <laughs> sort of bastardized them a little bit. Um, but yeah. yes, <laughs> they work really well. Yeah, it's a, it's a very very cool idea. Very cool Thank idea. You. Can, can you tell us, so the interior company that you work for now, is it an architect or an interior designer? Architecture and interiors, yeah. It's Architecture and interiors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a, large, a large-scale firm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Still enjoying that? <laughs> I am. Look, I think that I, I get something out of both worlds that I'm mm-hmm. sort of, you know, have one foot in each. I think I, you know, really stretch my 
design and scale, you know, design brain in terms of my everyday work and, you know, aligning to clients brief and functionality and sort of budget and all these things. And then I really get to know, I get to obviously make in my, in my workshop and engage with uh, material at a really sort of intimate scale and learn sort of the edges of that, which is, you know, what craft is. And so I, I sort of get, I get both. I think I get gained something out of both. So yes, I am enjoying it, but I think I'm enjoying it more because I'm part-time, not full-time. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you find you have um, a new perspective at all in, in doing interior design where you've got maybe more idea of furniture and the capability yeah. of timber and what it can bring to a room? Absolutely. And I think maybe not even just in terms of furniture, I think in terms of really understanding how things work and how they may, you know, how they'll be made and Mm. really, really trying to drill down into that. And also I think I just tend to go for minute details now because of the work that I've done in terms of furniture. I really like hone in on these key items, but I think in terms of really thinking about material and how things go together not that I wasn't thinking about that before, but this is, you know, it's added an, an additional layer to my work. And, and also, um, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like music to my ears because I get, occasionally I'll get uh, interior designers seeing through their designs or, or proposals for a room, which will mm. include some bespoke piece of furniture, which is why they come to me. Um, and the design is unworkable. Like nobody's sure. thought... No, you know, nobody's thought about how it's going to be made. They just want it to look like they want it to look. And it's so frustrating. And and having somebody like yourself who understands at least Mm -hmm. how things can be made or what limitations are, it makes such a difference to the person who's who's actually got to do the work in the workshop. Yeah, 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 totally. I think, I guess, yeah, a lot of designers provide design intent and, you know, you figure out the rest. (laughs) But I think also, yeah, I think also in my work and what drew me to furniture in particular was that I was, you know, when you're working in interiors, you largely do a lot of fit outs um, of existing, existing buildings. And maybe they've been, you know, a hotel, a restaurant, another Mm -hmm. bank in the, in the past and they want to become something else. What would, and you know, there's a churn aspect to it a lot often in interiors sort of everything gets a bit tired after seven to 10 years, which is quite sad and not, not really not great in terms of sustainability. But what I found from a lot of fit outs was that the thing that would maybe move from, you know, one fit out to the next was a really quality piece of furniture. Mm. It sort of stood the test of time and we would, you know, go in and do audits of existing fit outs with the, you know, the thought to sort of revamp everything. And we would really pick out, and hone in on quality quality pieces of furniture and they would be the things that would tra- traverse through to the next stage of um, the interior. So I think it's really it's really important good quality furniture pieces just sort of stand the test of time and and yeah, I thought I found that was really interesting and that's sort of what made me hone in on furniture making as sort of a sustainable design practice. It is really interesting because I thought I was the only one who like noticed that kind of thing. If I go to a hotel or something and I'm just zeroing in on the pieces of furniture that are nice or not nice or what thought has been given to what but any piece of freestanding furniture like typically in a there's a couple of hotels that i'm thinking of specifically they just have such nice pieces that you just want to hang out in the foyer and just kind of 
be with them, but that's me mm-hmm. being a furniture, you know, wood geek, but maybe other people <laughs> feel the same. I don't know. <laughs> I think so. And I think even if you're not, you know, really gung-ho interested in furniture or design, you just absorb it anyway. You know, you absorb quality of pieces, whether it's comfort or, you know, the warmth of timber or whatever it is. You may not be hyper aware of it, but I think you, you feel it in some way. Talking about that, do you have a we set we, we tend to talk to two different groups of people on the show. There's the person who's got a love for design and they know a list of designers off the top of their head and they get influenced by them and, and that's a part of their life. And then you get the other group which just I see, I make, that's it, it's as simple as that. Do you have do you have a a good understanding of the history of design and, and people before you and do you draw on that or has that just never really been part of your your process? I think it is. I think because I have studied design and have always been interested in design, I will I have my favourites. I'm definitely not a you know a movement loyalist, but I, I really draw a lot of inspiration from um, other makers certainly. And I think it's important to know sort of where you've come from and why things work and things work for a reason. So it's really important to sort of, you know, drill down into your history. For me, it is. It might not be necessarily for everybody, but for me, absolutely. And it's definitely, you know, depending on the job or the project that I have coming up, I might sort of pick and choose from an array of different designers or it might just be a a honing in on a detail of some obscure piece that I have no idea what it is from whatever time period I don't know um but there's definitely my favorites that I always return to whether they're designer makers or designers who worked really closely with craftspeople I think that back in the day that was a really interesting relationship like one person I always look back to is Charlotte Perrion she wasn't a maker necessarily but she was an architect and a furniture designer and she just has such a great repertoire of work and such a sensitivity to how people use her pieces of furniture and how it sits within the interior within a space so she's a she's a hero of mine including you know some makers as well so like Krenov which we were I was introduced to when I was at Sturt and Nakashima who just has such a defined aesthetic um yeah I definitely I think it's I think you're right I think it's really important because we We've had this discussion a few times about plagiarism and influences and what's original and all that kind of stuff. And you have to realize like there are only so many different ways that you can mm-hmm. put two bits of timber together. But I think if you have multidisciplinary influences, you've obviously got fashion, interiors, architecture, sculpture, and you start to pick and choose different bits and bring them together, that's what original design is, I think. Mm-hmm. Rather than trying to... like you know, be original about, yeah, about a simple piece of joinery. It's it's more the overall design language that you're creating by doing that research. So it is really important rather than just people hanging out on Instagram and following their two or three favorite makers, but to look beyond furniture design a bit, I think, is what creates real originality. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's so much, so, much, um, so much to draw on, I think. And not yeah. just for woodworking, yeah, like you said, sculpture, architecture, fashion, some, you know, great fashion designers out there. And even fashion designers who forayed into furniture making, which is also really interesting. Like a Rick Owens or Dion Lee or something like that. Yeah. Interesting. Talking about inspiration, I was looking at that 
um, I don't know what, just, I'm just looking what the name of the piece is. Uh, it's that sort of uh, entry table. Yes. Hall table. The way you've done that little detail on the feet. Mm. That's such, a, such an interesting little detail. And um, you talk about, you know, not just looking, or Brian, you were saying not just looking at your three makers and, and sticking with that. I'm going to steal that idea from you if you're okay sure. with that, because Reference, that's, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, look, I don't know like where that, that really cool. And I don't know where that came from necessarily. I think it was, you know, a functional, it's, you know, it's got better balance when it's up on its little points on its feet. Yeah. But um, yeah, like I, maybe I found it in a, I, I actually don't know where I got that from, but it's yours. There you go. Take it. <laughs> cool. Thank you. <laughs> you kind of, you see it as well in, in one of the wall mounted pieces. You've kind of got a step down. There's a shelf on one side of it and there's a step down. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like the, doing, like having the intuition to do something like that, as opposed to just leaving it all the same height. It, it adds a real interest and mm. I don't know, creates different focal points to the piece. Mm-hmm. that yeah. I think you can only, well, I might be wrong, but I think you can only develop that kind of intuition by really doing your research on design. I, I, yeah, I don't I think, think that so. that's something that comes natural. I think it's about learning what the possibilities are. It's like, well, yep. this person did it in this way. Maybe I could, you know, push it a little bit further in the other direction. It's not copying. Yep. I think it's sort of learning about possibilities of design. Yeah. Because it's also got the potential to go wrong. Oh, so you've got, to, you've got to yeah. have the, the chutzpah to, to, to have a crack and, yeah. And um, fail. Yeah. And fail, yeah. And yeah. fail, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've made some horrible pieces and I think I've just been stubborn, <laughs> stubborn to sort of see it through and I think I'm making it, I've just almost finished a piece at the moment which I got uh, maybe 80% of the way through and I was like, I, ca- I can't. I cannot with this. Like, it's just, it's not what I wanted. You could see the effort in it, and which is not what I, I think I always strive for. You know, it should look as simple as possible. It should look effortless. And you could see it in it. And I just, I hated it. Sort of went through the, you know, the darkness, the dark days. And then I changed it completely. I chopped the legs off. I burnt it. I did this and I did that. And, it, you know, it's come out the other side. It's not my favorite piece, but it's, I sort of stuck with it. And I think it's sometimes, you know, you can know exactly what it's going to look like on the other side, but sometimes you need to let the piece tell you what it wants to be. Mm. You know, let the process, you know, let the material or the piece drive it. So sometimes you have to switch gears and sit in the backseat a little bit, I think. I thought you were going to say you just bend it completely. <laughs> I almost did. I, I almost did. <laughs> I love the idea of what you said about having like pieces that uh, you that look awful or that you hate or whatever and, all of us, all of us have made pieces that are just like mm, no one needs to see it. But it would be awesome to have an Instagram account with just fails, all the shit, all the fails that that people uh, just admit to like these awful ideas. It would be an, it would be a fun um, kind of visual guide of what not to do, maybe. Yeah, yeah, agreed. <laughs> all right, well let's uh, let's call it there because we're coming up on time. Mm-hmm. Um, Jess, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and for having telling me. us your story. It's, uh, it's been great. We've talked about having you on the show for a while and in particular talking about that piece. So it's, oh, cool. yeah. it's great to finally, um, yeah, bring that to fruition. It's, it's pretty incredible to have a conversation like about, you know, we've seen five finished pieces of yours or four, four or five to have a conversation that in depth. So 
congratulations on everything and best of luck for Thank Clarence. You. Thank I've you. I've got very a, much. I've got a I've got a good feeling about it. Oh, stop. <laughs> we'll see. But yeah, it's in, so if anybody doesn't know Clarence Prize, give it a Google. I think the shortlist came out last week, did it? Or a couple I weeks think ago? I, I think a little while ago. A little yeah. while ago. But give yeah, it a yeah, Google. Yeah. There's some there's some fabulous pieces on it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will talk to you next time. Very good. See ya. See you guys.